Father, would you give us all that privilege to have others shout at us, are you out of your mind? Thank you that you have revealed the truth of the gospel to us who believe you've changed us and we know the reality of the message. Lord, we are able to sing lines like glory, glory, we have no other king than Jesus, Lord of all. That is so offensive to the world, God, but you have made it so true in our hearts. Thank you for revealing Jesus, Lord. I, I pray that you would reveal him to others, maybe even right now as we open your word. May your spirit be active among us, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. Please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to 1 Corinthians 15. It is good to be with you today. I have missed being here, to say the least. I'm glad to be back. Lord willing, next week we will be back in our study of Genesis, but I've been sitting on a resurrection sermon for three weeks, <laughs> and I'm burning to preach it, so 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Death is the ultimate neutralizer. Death can bring a sudden stop to the busyness of life unlike anything else. And for many, death is the last thing on their minds until it lands right beside them like a, a bomb in a war zone. We get so distracted, right, by work and family and recreation and our to-do lists and our projects and our schools and our sports and our schedules and our politics, our plannings. We go, go, go so hard we get into routines and we push forward. We get things done until death brings everything to a screeching halt. I have felt no other interruption in life so stirring, so numbing, so mentally hard to grasp than the reality of death. To just, to know someone so closely, to, to interact with them, to live with them, to laugh with them, to love them for years on years, to be right beside them for so long and in a moment, they're gone. Literally, years and years and years with people over and over, close family members and friends, just so much built up and just off a cliff, it's over. Lifeless, permanently unreachable. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. It is good for us to meditate on the reality of death. Death has a way of making the things most minor in life or most major in life seem minor all of a sudden. The, mo the things most urgent in life, they all of a sudden feel trivial. The death of a loved one or a family member or a friend, their death all of a sudden brings us right up to the doorstep of another world. The family member or friend who dies, they, 
enter that unchartered territory for a moment, and just for a moment, we feel the breeze of another world, and we are confronted with the reality that the things in this life really don't matter as much as the things in the next. There is no other tangible, evident human experience in life that brings the weight of Death. It is the ultimate neutralizer. It stops you where you are. It changes all of your plans. Its finality is mentally elusive. There are no second chances, resets, redos, do overs, do agains. It is done, final, when it happens. And no matter how much we try to prepare ourselves for the significance of that moment, we cannot do it until it happens. It's staggering to me as I'm looking at you, all alive right now, I'm looking at you in your face. It is staggering to me that for many of you, while I'm looking at you at alive right now, that one day I will preach your funeral. And you may attend mine. Death has a way of bringing reality home to us. Death is a universal problem. And listen, Christianity is the singular solution. Christianity is the only joyful solution. Christianity is the only reality that collides with the reality of death and triumphs. Death is undefeated until it collides with Christianity. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul will remind us if death is the ultimate enemy of the world, the truth of the resurrection is our only hope. And listen, I know it's not Easter, but every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in, acc in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 13. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are working in reverse order in this passage in many ways. This is what I mean. On Easter Sunday, Pastor Will preached the the last part of 1 Corinthians 15. And there it's like the climax. You see the benefits of the resurrection that death has lost its sting. That sin has been swallowed up in victory. And we get to experience the benefits of that. And that's, if that's the climax of Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 15, the climax, then there are steps that he takes to get there. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Will did a wonderful job leading us through that section of 1 Corinthians 15, the last part. But now I want to look at the steps that it took to get there. This text comes in three parts. In verse 1 through 11, Paul is reminding the readers. In verses 12 through 19, Paul is reasoning with the readers. And in verses 20 through 22, Paul shares the reality of his message. So reminder, reason, reality. First, be reminded of the gospel. Look at verse 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, hear the language. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In these first four verses, we see the reminder he gives is the gospel, and he describes it as, verse 3, first importance. And what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day and he appeared. He says, this is the first importance issue for the church, the gospel of Jesus. This is the message that the world rejects. And listen, this is the message that the church forgets. The world minimizes sin and doesn't see a need for the Savior. And the church can lose focus of sin and the reality of a Savior. We live in a world filled with problems and injustices and corruption and evil. We see the depravity of man on a relational level every day, man to man. But here's where the church must not lose focus. The world's greatest and most dire problem or injustice, or call it whatever you want, the world's greatest and most dire problem is not horizontal problems between man to man, but a vertical problem between man to God. That our sin collides with a holy God and his character. That's the primary problem and that's the primary reason Jesus came, to die for sinners. He was buried, was raised on 
the third day. Proclaiming that message is the primary and first importance of the church. And a church that has forgotten this gospel or replaced it with the headlines ceases to be a church and simply becomes a group that simply gathers for social concern or moral accountability or a glorified book club, whatever they are, they are not a church. In Abner Creek family, I would say if the gospel ever ceases to be our first importance issue, that Christ died for sinners, was buried, was raised, if that ever stops being our first important issue, I say very humbly and very cautiously, may God close our doors. Verse three, I delivered to you as first importance. There's a lot of things in life that matter. There's a lot of things in society that matters. Nothing matters as much as Christ died for sinners and was raised for their eternal life. And his reminder that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he then reminds the readers in verse 5 through 10 of everyone Jesus appeared to after being raised. Cephas, the rest of the 12 disciples, 500 other people, James, the apostles, lastly appeared to Paul. Paul says in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed, which by the way, this is telling that throughout the years, God has not preserved specific messengers. He has preserved what? A specific message. Because it's ultimately not about the specific messenger and that you and I don't need Paul in the flesh preaching to us. You don't need to hear it from Augustine or Calvin or Spurgeon or Donald because the point is not the messenger, the point is the message that he preserves. He says, whether it was I or they, we preach and you believed. Whoever preaches, whoever's the messenger, the most important question is, is he preaching the gospel? So first reminds them of this gospel work of Jesus. And now Paul will turn to reasoning with them. It's our second point. Consider his reasoning. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? You can hear the questioning tone in his voice. And what's he, what's, what is he doing? What's happening there? Well, the group that Paul is writing to is a group who has believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 11 says that we preached and you believed. They believe it, but he now says in verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So what is, what is he talking about here? Well, what Paul's likely dealing with is a group of people who believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, but that no one else would be. See, there, there was... There was a group of people that argued in that day that, you know, Jesus was this Greco-Roman God and because he was this God that he was the one who was raised, but just mere humans wouldn't be raised. Or others would say, well, Jesus was raised and one day our souls will be raised, but our bodies will always remain in the ground. And Paul says, if Christ is raised from the dead, how can you say that no other person will be? So starting in verse 13, Paul begins to use a tactic of reasoning that allows the opposite point of view to play out. He says, okay, you say there's no resurrection after the dead. Well, let's just see how that plays itself out. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, 
You can't separate the resurrection of Jesus from the resurrection of other humans. They are tied together and the first enables the other. That the resurrection of Jesus was never meant to be this exclusive experience that only happened to him. No, the hope of the gospel is because it happened to him, it will also happen to us. He says, if, if you say humans are not raised after dying, then you must say Christ himself was not raised. Now, my guess is that view that Jesus was raised but no one else is, that view is probably the minority in this room. I would, maybe none of you believe that. My guess is two other views take the room. One, you believe Jesus was raised and you believe that you too will be raised. Or the other view is you're a skeptic and you don't know what to think about Jesus' resurrection. You, you kind of doubt that it happened and maybe you doubt that you don't know what's going to happen to you. Those are the views that probably take the room. And so if, if you're a skeptic, Paul wants to consider the alternative with you. He's willing to go there with you for a moment. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then the following is true. Verse 14, first. If Christ has not been raised, then preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then I'm just wasting my breath. And so is every other preacher. If Christ has not been raised, I might as well be talking about Abraham Lincoln or Nelson Mandela or Winston Churchill or, or some other famous historical dead leader. He says preaching would be in vain if Christ has not been raised. It's like standing on a sidewalk, passing out flyers to a restaurant that doesn't exist. Second, verse 14 if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. In essence, he says, if Christ has not been raised, Christians should wear a neon sign on our forehead that says, I believe in something that's completely false, but it makes me feel better. Paul's like, if Christ has not been raised, you would do just as well to believe in the Easter bunny. A faith that is in vain. Third, verse 15 if Christ has not been raised, then we are misrepresenting God. How? Because we're testifying that God did something that he didn't do. Fourth, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then you remain in your sin. One truth that the resurrection shows is that when Jesus died, he paid for the penalty of sin. He appeased the wrath of God towards sinners like us. And the way we know he was successful in doing that is because he was raised from the dead. God approved. If God had not approved, he would have stayed dead. This is what Will was preaching about sin, being swallowed up in victory. When Jesus left the tomb, he left your sin in it. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then the sacrifice failed. And listen, the penalty for your sin and my sin remains on us. Fifth, verse 18. If Christ has not been raised, then all those who have fallen asleep or died have perished. In other words, all the people throughout history who have died. If Christ was not raised, all those people have ultimately perished. They're not saved. They're lost in darkness forever. Life becomes meaningless because death becomes final. And this past week, I did a memorial service for a 30-week-old stillborn infant. If Christ has not been raised, they're all lost forever. Family members, friends, this is nothing, just a part of the ground and forgotten, no more. 
6, he, can, he continues, verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. It's what the world says to believers is true. Look at those poor Christians believing in something, giving their whole lives devoted to something, and then they die and they're not even conscious to realize that nothing was awaiting them. A pitiful people. See, Paul plays the game. He considers the alternative view and then he explains, if you're right that there is no resurrection from the dead, then the implications are massive. Christians lose everything. Our preaching's in vain. Your faith is meaningless. We misrepresent God. We still have our sin on us. Our death is final and we are a pitiful people. This is how the world laughs at believers. On Easter Sunday morning, a couple weeks ago, I read a a tweet on Twitter from a skeptic of Christianity. He wrote this, quote, Once you recognize that the resurrection is a metaphor, you're free to ask, okay, but are there any better metaphors? And the answer is yes. Bowling. It has all the same allegorical potency. It's truer to life, generally comes with beer, and has no holiday you're obliged to celebrate. Now, if you have trouble following what his point is, it's just simply dripping with mockery to the Christian faith. Paul entertains the skeptic for a moment, but now Paul's considered the hypothetical long enough. In verse 20, he turns to persuade them with reality. He reminds them of the gospel. He reasons with them. And third, he looks to persuade them with reality. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then yes, all of this is meaningless, but look at verse 20. I love the words. But in fact, not but hopefully, not but probably, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And they're like, how can he say that? How can he say that with such confidence? How dare he have or claim to have a corner on truth and make such an audacious claim? Well, how can Paul be so confident? How can you be confident that Christ has been raised from the dead? This text gives us four strong reasons that validate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is in fact true. Four strong reasons that the resurrection is true. Number one, scriptures foretold of these events. Look at verse three and four. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, scripture foretold of these things hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years later, they're being fulfilled just as they were written about. The fulfillment of prophecies in the Bible alone, to the very detail, should stable our confidence in the Word of God. Scripture foretold of these events and then they came true. Second, Paul saw the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Look at verse 8. Last of all, he, Jesus, appeared also to me. Paul was so confident because Paul knew what he saw. 
He approved of Jesus' death, and then he saw him appear to him. This is, this is the evidence that the world wants, right? You hear people say, I won't believe it till I see it. Paul saw it with his own eyes. And the question you have to ask is, if you question that, how do you know he didn't see it? You say, well, that's just one person. Just one person? Well, the third point, Jesus appeared to over 500 more people after his resurrection. Look at verse five and following. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then to more than 500, then James, the apostles, then Paul. Jesus was not secretive about his resurrection. He didn't like get everyone in a room and say, all right, let's keep this on the down low, hush, hush. Let's let everybody see I'm, I've been raised to life. He appeared to all these people, hundreds of people. They talked to him. They touched him. They wrote about him. They ate with him. He was with them for weeks. Paul says the resurrection happened. And listen, I'm not the only one who saw it. Hundreds, lots of people did. And they wrote about it. Wouldn't you write about it if you saw a resurrected person? I guarantee you, your Facebook timelines would be filled with you writing about it. Saw it with his own eyes. Hundreds of other people saw it with their own eyes. Fourth, the radical transformation of Paul points to the truth of the resurrection. Look at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles. Why, Paul? I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Oh, See, Paul didn't grow up in a family where it was easy to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't just believe all his life. He didn't have parents who said, believe in Jesus, and say, okay, I will. No, instead, Paul was one of the strongest opponents of Jesus and his way. Even secular historians who do not wear the name of, of Christian affirm this truth that there was a man named Saul who was killing the church and then became Paul who became a leader of it. Paul was not apathetic toward the church. He didn't say, well, you guys can just believe whatever you want. No, Paul was steeped in his pride. He prided himself in climbing the very ranks in the system that opposed Jesus and his way to the death. And yet, something happened in this man's life that took him from hating Jesus in his way to loving him, from killing the church to being the greatest missionary ever. Those transitions do not happen unless something radical happens. Something happened that changed this man's whole perspective on life his whole direction, his whole outlook, his whole belief system changed practically overnight. What was it? Seeing a man rise from the dead will do it. It changed him. He couldn't help but believe. He said, I see him with my own eyes. And who am I to keep persecuting this man? He's on the road and Jesus knocks him off his horse and blinds him. It's like, how can I not believe? And just as a, a piece of bonus evidence here, speaking of things changing, for hundreds of years, the people of God worshiped on Saturday. 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden, something happened where the day shift to Sunday, the Lord's day. Now, I love the church and I love each one of you, but I can tell you, sometimes change is hard in the church, right? And it's not something you guys like to accept just overnight, right? We don't like change. And for hundreds of years, they worship on Saturday and all of a sudden, let's change to Sunday. If I told you no more Sunday morning worship, we're going to do Tuesday, you wouldn't go for it. Something happened where they said, this, this way we've been doing it is really small compared to what we've seen, <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus. See, Paul says, look at the reality. In fact, Christ has been raised because the scripture foretold it and it came true. He saw it with his own eyes. Hundreds of other people saw it with their own eyes. Paul was radically transformed. All those things must have an explanation. The only explanation that points or explains them is the resurrection. Now listen to this carefully. Who holds the burden of proof here? Paul or his skeptics? Because Paul has already given his evidence. What about the skeptic? Maybe for some of you. See, in order to deny the resurrection, it's not enough just deny it. You have to have reasons for why you don't believe it. In order to deny the resurrection, you must be willing to do the following. First, you must look at the scriptures and have a better explanation for the prophecies that are clearly fulfilled in history. You say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I believe the prophecies were made up. I believe the fulfillment were made up. Okay, well, just think about this. It's interesting to note that historians take great works of history, writings of history, and how do they authenticate them? How do they validate them? Well, they take all the copies and the manuscripts of the works of history and they compare them together. So you take the works of, say, like Plato or the histories of Tacitus and these ancient works that all of society says, yeah, those are authentic. They pull all these together and like and the works of Plato, we have like 20 to 30 manuscripts. The histories of Tacitus, we have maybe seven to 10 and they pull them together and they say, okay, they match here, they match here. These are authentic. Now consider that the New Testament alone has over 5,000 manuscripts, fragments or documents that come from different regions of the world, from different writers and they pull them together and they match and yet, historians will claim the works of Plato are, they're authentic. We have 10 copies showing that they match. And well, we have 5,000 of the New Testament and I'm not too sure about them. We don't believe the Bible is true. The Bible is one of the most documented and reliable historical accounts in all of literary history. Christianity is a religion of faith without a doubt. We believe what we cannot see, but don't let anyone ever tell you that your faith is based upon unreliable sources. It has stood the test of time and God has been gracious to sustain his word again and again. To deny the resurrection, you must first have a better explanation for the scriptures. Second, in order to deny the resurrection, you must look at Paul and say to him, you didn't see him. And you know what, Paul? You're a liar. In fact, Paul, you're a crazy liar. You didn't see him. And you must be willing and able to show why 
Paul didn't see him. Why Paul is a liar. Why he in fact is crazy. And think about it. Is there any evidence that supports the claim that Paul was a habitual liar? Is there any evidence that shows that he was out of his mind like Festus and Agrippa called him? I mean, he was steeped in scholarly work. He was trained in his day. He was the top of his class. He was not known for being a crazy man. What would he gain from making a sudden shift and saying, I saw a risen person. In fact, he lost everything. Third, in order to deny the resurrection, you must look at over 500 people and say, you guys didn't see him either. And you guys are lying too. And you guys are crazy too. Now just go with me here for a moment. Think about how absurd that type of skepticism sounds in another situation. Okay, let's, let's plug in the formula with something else. Let's say your local meteorologist says there's a tornado coming through tomorrow and I have a documented source on the radar that shows it's coming. Right, a reliable document foretelling of the tornado. And then the tornado comes. And you're peeking out of your little shelter and you say, and you, you see it. <laughs> the tornado is wreaking havoc. It's, it's everywhere. And other people in your community, hundreds of other people see this tornado, right? And then after the tornado is gone, people come out of their houses and their shelters and, and they see the effects of the tornado. Buildings are destroyed. Trees are down. Houses are gone. It's clearly evident a tornado's come through. Now let's say at that moment somebody comes running in, they're out of breath, they say, there was no tornado. We're like, what are you talking about? You guys didn't see the tornado. And all these trees and these buildings that are down and the houses are down, there's a perfectly good explanation for them. And you know, I've never seen a tornado. There's no way there could be a tornado. And it, it cannot be what you're saying. <laughs> and everybody would turn and say, he's crazy. And we saw it. It was told us in advance and it came. Everybody saw it. You could see the effects everywhere. The resurrection was not only foretold. An individual witnessed it. Hundreds of people witnessed it. Look around. We're here today as an effect of the resurrection. And we're crazy? Fourth and finally, to deny the resurrection, you have to have a better explanation for the scriptures. You have to say, Paul, you're crazy. You have to say, hundreds of people were lying or were crazy. And fourth and finally, in order to deny the resurrection, you must be able to explain just how the man Saul went from persecuting the church to the man Paul who served the church. More so how he went from killing the church to being willing to die for the church. What explains that historical shift? I'll tell you what explains it. If you show me a man who rises from the dead, I'll follow him anywhere. And I'll give up anything he tells me to give up. And I'll go to the ends of the earth. And I'll become the greatest missionary that's ever come because I know I'm following a man who got up from the dead. And if anybody kills me, so what? Because I'm getting up too. That's what explains Paul and his... Radical shift. 
What are we to do with this pile of evidence? Just like in a courtroom, evidence leads us to a decision. See, Paul connects the reality of the resurrection now to your life. He's reasoned, he's explained, he makes the connection. He says, because Christ has been raised, so too will you be. Look at verse 20. Christ is called the first fruits, meaning the first harvest of the fruit gives the indication of what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. Friends, you are the rest of the harvest. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All of history can be summed up like this. Everyone who was born after Adam, except for Jesus, was born into the curse of death. And we witness it every day. People die every day. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's a reality we can't avoid. But after Christ was raised, death was defeated so that life with Christ was now possible even after death. So everyone who dies, your life will conclude either in one of two people. You will either die in final death with Adam in sin, or you will either die in Christ to everlasting life. In our first brother, Adam, or in our second brother, Jesus. So I started this whole thing talking about the, the sobering reality of death. I want to conclude with these questions for you. What's going to happen to you when you die? Seriously. If the Lord is merciful enough and he gives you time to have final thoughts, if it's not a sudden death and you know your hour is very close, what will be your final thoughts? What will be your final concerns? Will you take comfort in, I'm in Christ in just a moment, I'm going to pass away, but I'm going to enter eternity. Will that be your comfort? Or will you lie possibly in a cold hospital room with feelings of anxiousness wondering, I wonder what's next for me? Dying in Adam, death's sting is forever. Dying in Christ, death has no sting if Christ is risen, we can take great comfort that we will rise too for all who trust in him. You can be in Christ today if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as the savior and ruler of your life. The hope of the resurrection changes our lives. It's just not a hope that we have for the future. The hope of the resurrection changes how we live and think and believe right now. The hope of the resurrection is a, a universal linking of arms among Christians. We have a, a bold, unified declaration that he is risen and we will never die. And listen, if, if Christ is risen and we will never die, you can go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel or across the street and proclaim the gospel. We can give our lives for the sake of the gospel. We can be mocked and spit upon and beaten and killed. We may go down in apparent defeat because we know we will rise triumphantly just like our Savior. Let's pray. 
Oh God, thank you that the reality of the resurrection is to be on our minds every day. Every day, Lord, to live in light of this wonderful truth. Thank you for the reminder of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for this sound reasoning of Paul who shows us the folly of believing the resurrection couldn't happen. And thank you for the reality of the resurrection that gives us hope today and tomorrow forevermore. Thank you for being such a good and gracious king to us and giving us life everlasting. In Christ's name, amen.